His charm is so contagious, vaccines have been created for it. Years ago, he built a city out of blocks. Today, over 600,000 people live and work there. He is the only man to ever ace a Rorschach test. Every time he goes for a swim, dolphins appear. Alien abductors have asked him to probe them. If he were to give you directions, you'd never get lost, and you'd arrive at least five minutes early. His legend precedes him, the way lightning precedes thunder. He is the most interesting man in the world. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you so much for rejoining us. And uh, we've got our next guest just waiting in the wings. He's in the green room right now having a cup of tea. But before we connect with Adam Gary, uh, I just want to give a big shout-out to our friends at uh, New Dawn Magazine. And uh, the New Year's edition is uh, set to hit the – it's coming off the press, uh, I think, in about 10 days. And it will be ready uh, before New Year's or right around New Year's. And uh, I I think I've I've done a feature for that. It might be the cover story. I'm not sure. We'll find out when it it arrives in my hand. But uh, I basically have written a a scathing um, indictment against Google. Uh, and their sort of use of artificial intelligence and algorithms to censor and to derank uh, and to sort of decide for you uh, what you should be able to see when you put search terms uh, in the Internet. They want to sort of uh, segregate uh, content so as to what's uh, trusted and what they call fake news or politically uh, inconvenient or dissident language that they're trying to sort of marginalize uh, and they're do- making those decisions for us, and that's in this edition, and you'll only be able to get that there. Uh, so, and I really appreciate uh, the the job that they do at New Dawn Magazine and curating uh, pretty much one of the most interesting uh, magazines. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended to the title of this show, but it is one of the most interesting magazines in the world. And uh, as uh, Alexander Dugan said. This is the magazine that can help you make sense of what is basically a weird, weird world that we live in. Uh, it certainly is a weird world, and thank you, uh, Dugan, for that great uh, quote about New Dawn Magazine. So check out. There's uh, ads and links. You can pick up a single issue. If you want to subscribe, You know, go ahead. It's a good subscription to have. I think it's uh, bi-monthly or quarterly. I'm not sure. But uh, certainly it's good to have a physical copy in your hand as well that you can show people, lend to people, have it at home, uh, give someone as a gift. It's always interesting. And uh, I'm happy to be writing uh, in the political, the uh, geopolitics section uh, for them uh, for a while. And uh, there's other stuff in there, other content. They've got health uh, and all sorts of other things and some, you know, ancient history and all all sorts of stuff. So great job at New Dawn Magazine uh, by the team there. And uh, you can pick up a copy there. Just go to uh, the show page or in the margins 
and hit that and see if there's any any deals going maybe for New Year's. Possibly, we'll see. Now, our next guest uh, is also uh, uh, many things, but is is currently the editor at large of the Duran.com, uh, and he's also a regular on uh, Crosstalk on RT. And his name is Adam Gary. He's been on the show before. And he's joining us on the live link from London. Hello, Adam. Hi, Patrick. How's everyone doing? That's pretty good. How's, how's the Christmas spirit uh, in London? London's always a great place to be for Christmas. Oh, uh, humbug. Did I say that? No. <laughs> uh, there are Christmas lights and even more um, brake lights in the heavy, heavy traffic. So there's, there's my attempt to put everyone in a jolly mood. <laughs> brake lights. I like that. So Christmas lights and brake lights. So uh, that's good. That's good. So Oxford Circus, Regent Street, that's usually like the best place to, to go if you want to see uh, the lights and stuff like that. It's it's always nice. Uh, although it's got, it's gotten a bit weird, Adam. They, they've got like video, a lot of video walls and all sorts of other sort of high tech decorations. I just like the old holly and the, you know, and the wreaths. That's good enough for me. And, and the fairy lights, that's enough. I know, it's better than, you know, the two-way mirrors, the CCTV cameras everywhere, um, you know, false flags bowing in the winter snow. I, I, I prefer the old-fashioned ways, absolutely. Yeah, false flags blowing. The, let's hope there's none of those. They had that. Let's remember hope. The, there's remember been some th- weird stuff going on, but luckily not weird enough for anyone to get hurt. So let's just hope it stays that way. Did you see that sort of false alarm they had a couple of weeks ago on uh, Oxford Circus? Um, I saw that. It was it was really weird because they when they started reporting it, um, they were reporting the oh t- terrorist police on the scene. They sent out mixed signals about whether or not police were confirming it was a terrorist incident, and it turns out that it was just a stampede caused by I still don't know what, but I assume. Uh, there were early reports of smoke, still unverified, but it could have just been some little mechanical fire in the very old electrical boxes and the fuses, and someone shouted something, caused a stampede, and uh, it, it, it doesn't bode well if it were the real thing. But what gets me a bit worried is that it seems that there have been a lot of tests going on on all sides of the both sides of the Atlantic, which are trying to sort of test people's reaction to very various things. And I think that that's a real. You don't want to play with the lives of citizens. You don't want to toy with people's minds using what's essentially psychological warfare. So people have got to be vigilant against the real thing, but they've also got to be vigilant against the psychological warfare techniques that people use against regular people just, you know, going to see the lights we were talking about. Yeah, I think if if you work in uh, uh, the upper echelons of uh, law enforcement, that's called uh, resilience uh, that they're testing. So public stress test to see uh, the resilience of the British public that Theresa May seems to be reminding us of how much resilience that we need to have uh, to uh, deal with the terrorist threat because the state might not be there to protect us. So we just have to have that resilience in our pocket uh, just in case. So I hear this more and more. But those shots fired were the original reports of that, Adam. And uh, uh, what I what I read out of that story was the stampede was caused by the police running around shouting at people to uh, go shelter in place and to sort of, you know, whatever move off the street or off the sidewalk and get into that shop. They're literally screaming at people. Um, that's what caused the stampede. That's what I, I read from that. that. That makes total sense. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's not what you want to see if you're out Christmas shopping, um, and hopefully you don't. Uh, 
Um, so bizarre, bizarre. Now let's let's get into some news. And you know, one of the reasons we got um, Adam on the story uh, this week is I just saw this Newsweek cover for Adam, and I thought this was a spoof, but no, it's real. It's got a picture of Vladimir Putin, and it says Putin is preparing for World War Three. Yeah, that's bad news. It says, yeah, that's bad news. Says Newsweek. Now I don't, ha- I don't have a lot of general respect for Newsweek um, as a uh, publication. I mean, anyone that would put Kurt Eichenwald on salary uh, for that long <laughs> is 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 not really a proper news organization. But anyway, they're a shadow of their former self, and they were in the sort of I don't know if they still are. They're under the sort of the the Barry Diller empire there with the Daily Beast. Uh, Newsweek there in the sort of that sort of end of the fake news uh, mainstream industry but this is just blatant uh, this this is psychological warfare but it's not pointed at Russia this is pointed at at the American people um, Adam this this publication I was just I'm looking at this as a cover story at Christmas I'm thinking what is war you know are they trying to uh, prepare the public for the possibility of war or is this just the last ditch sort of desperate move to try to, I mean, there's not many cards you can pull Adam after you sort of pull the world war three card. There's not much left in the deck after that. No, what they're, what they're doing, as you say, it's entirely directed towards the Western public, mainly the U.S., but also in Europe. Um, it's not directed to Russia at all. Russia at first thought that the whole thing was strange. Then they thought it was mildly amusing, then mildly annoying. And now they just realize that it's par for the course, just as if you're a Middle Eastern country that happens to have an Islamic majority and happens to have gas or oil, you should be prepared for lies about weapons, the lies about where the weapons are transported, lies about how big the weapons are. And we all saw Nikki Haley uh, talk about Iran the other day. Uh, we've, of course, got James Mad Dog Mattis. Think of what a female dog is. And then you can hear the non-family friendly version of what I call Nikki Haley. Uh, the Russia Gate story and the whole Russia demonization that is implicit in it and beyond it is all an attempt to stifle, confuse, and frankly bewitch the American public into thinking that somehow all of the money spent by uh, the federal government in the U.S. on the deep state is somehow doing something uh, more important than if it went into things like streets, bridges, airports, the kinds of things that Trump, before he became Mr. President, like Obama and Bush before him, uh, was saying that was necessary. And there really is a trend here. At this time last year, Trump had won. He hadn't entered into the White House. I had some cautious, very high hopes. But when you think about uh, what Bush and Obama said, uh, it puts things rather in context. In 1999 and 2000, when, uh, when W. Bush was running against Gore, he said, no nation building. The U.S. will no longer be in the business of nation building. Now, this was the term uh, that was used at the time to imply no foreign interventions. And he was being mildly critical of the illegal and devastating and 
counterproductive and immoral war that Bill Clinton launched on Yugoslavia to get Monica Lewinsky out of the headlines. Then when Bush came to power, we all know what happened. Then we had Obama. He was hope. He was change. He was the young star of the Democratic Party who would close Guantanamo and stop the wars. Uh, then four more wars and one big bloated Guantanamo later, plus really deteriorating relations, even by Bush's standards, with both Russia and China, and we all know what Obama represented. We're in the same boat now with Trump. The only difference is on the domestic front, Trump isn't playing ball with the establishment, whereas Bush and Obama became the middle management of the deep state and did so, uh, certainly in Obama's case, exceptionally well. He was the most eloquent spokesman for the HR department, if we can put it that way, for the deep state that one could imagine, where Trump is sort of a disgruntled employee, (laughs) very disgruntled indeed. Um, what we've got right now is we're supposed, we as people who are media consumers, and I don't consume mainstream media, but I do occasionally look at it to see just what they're inflicting on those who aren't yet aware of the fact that you can get news from real radio stations like this, real television outlets like RT, real websites, the dozens of them, the Duran, uh, simply one of many good websites. And so if, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of someone who didn't know that truth is actually possible in this digital age and who was stuck in this past mentality, this is how he would wake up on Monday. Russia is going to invade Europe. They've got submarines that are ready to target Washington, D.C. It's sort of the Cuban Missile Crisis, U-2 crisis on steroids, all combined with a sort of apocalyptic vision of Stalinism meets Tsarism, and this weird thing called Putinism, which is not anything you'll hear in Russia. There's no such thing as Putinism. There's such a thing as Russian policy that isn't particularly ideological. Uh, And that's what Putin and those around him have pursued for some time now. Waking up on Tuesday, it's Kim Jong-un, that man who on Monday was a weak cartoonish character from a, a South Park cartoon whose missiles don't go anywhere and, who, and who's sitting at the piano like his father singing, I'm so lonely now. He's um, a man whose missiles can kill everyone in the world and you've got to be afraid of him, even though North Korea has invaded no one since 1953 and the United States have invaded almost everyone. Uh, to put it a bit hyperbolically, but not much. Then on Wednesday, you wake up in the morning, and who are you supposed to fear? It's a close one, but this time it's Bashar al-Assad. Even though he's fighting al-Qaeda, the group accused of doing 9-11, and fighting ISIS, a group that beheads people uh, left and right for the crime of being born into the wrong faith, the crime of not obeying the insane uh, throwback rules, or the crime of being the wrong ethnicity, he's fighting them, but somehow you're supposed to be afraid of him, uh, and Bibi Netanyahu is all too happy about that. It's Thursday morning, and who are you supposed to wake up fearing? This time it's Iran, another country that has invaded no one in modern history, a country that is actually working with the legitimate governments of Iraq and Syria, fighting al-Qaeda, fighting ISIS, um, and somehow they're the bad guys, even though everyone, including uh, America's European allies, are saying that they're in full compliance with this Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, and aren't doing anything wrong, if even the French and the Germans are saying this.
It's um, what day are we on? I think we're on Friday now, and we've run out of ideas. So Putin is going to steal your internet. Never mind that the U.S. Congress just uh, destroyed so-called net neutrality, uh, which essentially brings forth further corporatization to the internet world. But no, it's Putin who's going to steal your internet. Tune in to Saturday's show to find out what he'll steal next. And that is my sort of week minus a day summary of the cycle of mainstream media. North Korea, Russia, Iran, Bashar al-Assad, Russia again, back to the beginning, and there you go. And, and don't you think it's, uh, it's more than just a coincidence uh, that you do get this, this Russia – okay, gosh – I want to get to Nikki Haley, but then, okay, let's get to Nikki Haley first. I want to talk about the Russia undersea cable hunt for Red October story <laughs> because because that thing has been recycled twice since 2015, and I'll show that in a minute. But here's okay, so here's so you brought up Nikki Haley. I didn't bring it up. You brought. Well, I sort of did bring it up, but you sort of went for. So Nikki Haley is on the warpath again. Okay, so. My personal uh, feeling is with this this uh, person, um, I honestly think that this person has no conscience. I look into her eyes. As as uh, who said this? As I looked into uh, Obama said it when he met Putin. No, who said that when he? No, that was Bush when he met was, Putin. The, the great the great uncommunicator himself. Did he say he looked in Putin's eyes and he saw the soul of the man? Oh, no, was that or was who's? Was that no, he looked into Putin's eyes and he said, I saw the man's soul. And, and that was it. I bet it was a good influence on him, too, because he sort of he, he became more sort of, uh, you know, this is the thing with presidents, uh, Adam, that um, they're like it's like NFL football players who uh, supposedly graduated from universities that after sort of 10 years in the league, they they they. They become quite articulate. They can give interviews. They're, they're they're pretty much on their game. It does take a while, though. With Bush, it took him like four or five years to sort of appear like he was literate. Uh, and that there was that scene in after nine eleven where he's reading to these kids in a school in Florida, and the book was called My Pet Goat, but he was holding it upside down. <laughs> but he's reading. Anyway, he did figure out all of these skills, how to be a president, how to read, how to give interviews after eight years. Uh, and, so, and Trump Trump will do the same. Uh, he'll prob- I wouldn't be surprised if Trump wins a second term. But anyway, Nikki Haley, I don't think she's got a soul, or if she, if she does, it's just so far in the rearview mirror that uh, I listen to this woman and I look at the robotic delivery, and I, uh, I would, I, I'd be willing to bet, and I know this is going to be really controversial, but she would be clinically diagnosed as a psychopath. And so, he, here's who would take, who would, who would give up a cushy job as governor of South Carolina, a total, totally cushy job. In a nice, fairly safe seat there, should probably move on to be senator. Another cushy job where you don't have to do a whole lot. I mean, it's 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 a charm life. She might even she could even play her cards right. She'd be the female vice president on some ticket, maybe the next ticket. Who knows? She took a job that is the most corrupted, worst job you can take in the U.S. Uh, uh, administrative setup, which is uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., John Bolton, Samantha Power, now Nikki Haley, which of those three have come out looking better after their term as uh, U.N. 
ambassador than when they entered. I mean, it's it's a cursed job. So here she is throwing out this evidence here, and it's amazing. She's standing behind a big graphic, and she's presenting the evidence. And we'll go ahead and play this so you can hear it and listen to this. Listen to her. As President Trump announced on October 13th, the United States is taking a new approach to Iran by focusing on all of the regime's destabilizing behavior. That means we are not just focused on the nuclear program. We're also taking a hard look at Iran's ballistic missile program, its arms exports, and its support for terrorists, proxy fighters, and dictators. Our new strategy was prompted by the undeniable fact that the Iranian regime's behavior is growing worse. The, Duke, the nuclear deal has done nothing to moderate the regime's conduct in other areas. Aid from Iran's Revolutionary Guard to dangerous militias and terror groups is increasing. Its ballistic missiles and advanced weapons are turning up in war zones across the region. It's hard to find a conflict or a terrorist group in the Middle East that does not have Iran's fingerprints all over it. In this warehouse is concrete evidence of illegal Iranian weapons proliferation gathered from direct military attacks on our partners in the region. Behind me is an example of one of these attacks. These are the recovered pieces of a missile fired by Houthi militants from Yemen into Saudi Arabia. The, miss the missile's intended target was the civilian airport in Riyadh, through which tens of thousands of passengers travel each day. I repeat, the missile was used to attack an international civilian airport in a G20 country. Ooh, in a G20 country. Just imagine if this missile had been launched at Dulles Airport or JFK. Or the airports in Paris, London, or Berlin. And I suppose they could let that one off in 45 minutes or less, right? The famous, the famous, if Sadomino's pizza doesn't come on time, your war of illegal occupation comes for free. It's, 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 it's so ridiculous. Let, let, let's, we'll let her finish this off. Here she goes. There's no, she hasn't said anything about Scud missiles yet, but I'm waiting. Hold on. <laughs> That's what we're talking about here. That's what Iran is actively supporting. Well, I'll be. Well, I'll be. Nikki Haley. What she got for us there? Well, uh, I want to tell Nikki that it's not the Iran nuclear deal. It's called the JCPOA or JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Adam, is it too much to ask that the United States ambassador to the UN could at least know the title of the so-called Iran nuclear deal. No, that involves alphabets. Uh, what is this? What is this? Uh, this show that we're watching here. Firstly, she said she says she pronounces terrorists like Bush does. Terrorists, which would be an immediate red flag to anyone listening. First of all, and she said regime with Iran. So she's already planted that stick down regime, uh, and so so now Iran is so, supposedly. Uh, um, backing all the terrorists in the Middle East. What groups is she talking about? What terrorists is Iran backing? The, the biggest backer of terrorists in in the in the region is clearly Saudi Arabia, number one. Okay, from from Nusra to ISIS across the board. 
not only backing them, but actually they've got people in there as well. Uh, and so Saudi Arabia and its allies, the UAE, the United States itself, uh, Israel, basically they've all got their hands completely filthy with Syria and Iraq, with ISIS, with Nusra, with all of them, okay, the, the U.S. and Britain and France, uh, but especially Saudi Arabia. And they're pointing, they're trying to build this straw man. That's the only way I can describe it, Adam, that Iran is somehow behind the international issue of terrorism or problem. They're on the ground fighting ISIS, okay? If it was not for Iran, ISIS would have overran Iraq by now in, in the most horrible way. The, the, the massacres would have mounted up in ways that you can't even imagine. If not for Iran intervening, supplying the Iraqi army with, with weapons, which they had none when, when ISIS came and did their major uh, first wave in June of 2014, Iran came, helped them, and armed, helped to arm and get the Hash to Shabi, the, uh, the People's Mobilization Units, ready in Iraq. If not for Iran, if not for Iran, Iraq would be an absolute war zone, a bloodbath, like worse than it was. And it was pretty bad, Adam. It would have been it would have been twice, three times as worse if not for Iran. Okay, and I don't even want to get into Syria because that's that's another conversation. But just for Iraq. So what on earth is this woman talking about? I really want to know. And well, she's not only completely wrong about um, Iran and its non-existent links to terrorism, as you just explained, but there's a key point that a lot of people around Nikki Haley must be missing. They probably don't know what the word blockade means. In March of 2015, the Saudis began blockading Yemen with their ships, with their planes at the ready, and with the northern border um, on Yemen, and also so Oman is essentially, uh, it's closed its border to Yemen. So anything they say about Oman, nothing of any significance, certainly not from a sovereign state, can get in from Oman. Then in uh, July of 2015, this JCPOA was agreed upon, which everyone, including the UN and uh, many other countries, China, Russia, Germany, Britain, France, says they're obeying. There is no way that Iran could bring these missiles into Yemen without being seen by the Saudis and without being stopped. If UN-flagged ships that are carrying water and medicine can't get past the Saudi blockade, even with permission, do does anyone out there honestly think that an, an Iranian warship bearing missiles could get through a blockade organized by their biggest regional foe? It's absolutely absurd. Even if Iran wanted to arm the Houthis, uh, there's just no way that they could get past the blockade. Oh, God knows what missiles she was standing behind. A lot of ballistics experts have debunked that on its own merits, but the geopolitical reality is that Iran could not have got anything through to Yemen at the time that Nikki Haley is talking about because Yemen is surrounded. Yeah, that that too, and let, let's put this in perspective a little bit. She, she's, you know, if the Houthis squeezed off a couple of uh, crude uh, scuds, sort of giant Roman candles, um, and if they squeezed out a couple of those, so my, my attitude is, who cares? So what? They deserve to squeeze off more than that because Saudi Arabia, with the United States arming it and the UK s- selling endless amount of weapons, 
like cashing checks like no one's ever seen before. The, the Saudi Arabian uh, illegal undeclared war of aggression against Yemen has been the biggest boom for arms, the arms industry, it, really the best thing in, on the planet right now. And so they've been carpet bombing Yemen now for uh, almost three years. And what does that not get factored into her little moral um, uh, uh, threat matrix there? Even even a little bit? The, the tens of thousands of people dead? Uh, the cholera epidemic, the worst human rights disaster of the 21st century, all man-made, Saudi men, American arms dealers, British, French arms dealers. These are the men and women who made this this disaster. Is it, so is this is this is this person who's supposed to be the United States of America's ambassador to the UN? Or is she that is she that stupid to to not be able to somehow weigh those on the scale of justice? Or is she completely ignorant of it? I, I literally think, Adam, that some of these American politicians they get fed all the pieces of information, and they literally don't know what's going on in the world. They're they're like horses at Kentucky Derby with blinders on. They are race horses in a way. They they are sort of pumped up to perform, and they, they don't do a whole lot. They just have a simple job. So you go from here and you go there, and then when you're done, do it again. That's kind of like what I'm thinking because, or they just these are it's it's incomprehensible. It really is. Well, absolutely. They're fed this information, and in the same time, some of them would have at least spat some of it out. But when it comes to Nikki Haley, certainly, she swallows it all in one big gulp, if you know what I mean. I don't, actually. I don't, <laughs> don't go there. Use their imagination. Moving on swiftly. Moving, <laughs> moving on swiftly. Let's go for uh, – let's go for – uh, well, for, um, I just want to add too that you know th- this is a huge, um, this is a huge distortion of the so-called intelligence uh, that they're they're punting now on Iran. It's pretty much identical to what they did with Iraq uh, in February of twenty or of two thousand three. So she she really kind of performed the Colin Powell ritual uh, just there that we just saw there on the uh, the great uh, network MSNBC. And so Iran, I'm going to repeat this, Iran is in total compliance with the international agreement. Uh, and so they have not violated, they're not, they're running a secret nuclear weapons program, okay? So this is not North Korea, this is uh, the Republic, Islamic Republic of Iran, this is a country is absolutely abiding by the terms of the deal. And so this is, I don't know what sort of war they're trying to line up here, but I'm sure, where do you think these marching orders are coming from, Adam? Well, the marching orders in terms of Iran are coming from Israel, and you don't need to be in espionage to realize that. All you need to do is YouTube uh, a speech, however recent or even distant, by Netanyahu, the Israeli regime leader, um, and then... Two minutes later, Google, YouTube, the same speech about Iran by Nikki Haley. They're using the same epithets, the same scare tactics, the same language about Iran. So it's really no mystery where the script is being written on this one. And here's another story that came out, and you probably saw this too. And this is actually, this is is kind of an important, uh, potentially important story here. WikiLeaks recognized as a media organization by a U.K., 
tribunal. So this, the definition by the UK information tribunal uh, may assist Julian Assange's defense against U.S. extradition on the grounds of press freedom. And uh, this was a decision which was uh, come to a couple of days ago. And so this is going to have a huge bearing, uh, Adam, on the uh, issue of whether Assange is to be considered a, a journalist and a publisher rather than what the U.S. is trying to uh, categorize uh, as a sort of what they call a non-state intelligence agency. This is the sort of cre- from the creative department of the CIA. Uh, and so the, the, so when, when they came out with this whole thing about calling WikiLeaks a non-state intelligence agency, there was a reason for that, Adam, is what I'm saying. is they It, is be, it has everything to do with the uh, uh, legal uh, status um, of Julian Assange how one is labeled by the uh, this international uh, cartel is very important because that determines what legal protections they can have and what legal protections they can't have. And so this is actually, I'm, I'm quite, um, you know, encouraged by this decision, Adam. It's certainly, on paper anyway, a very big step in the right direction. Mad Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump's uh, CIA director, has more conspiracies about Julian Assange than um, than the Flat Earth Society, which has branches all around the world, has about their issue de jour. But the problem is, if Pompeo's loony theories about Assange were to be actually executed, Assange could be extradited and literally executed in the U.S., uh, as Hillary Clinton has salivated about many times. This new ruling, however, puts Pompeo on notice in the sense that um, the UK tribunal is saying, no, WikiLeaks, uh, it's a journalistic media organization, nothing to do with espionage, nothing to do with intelligence. And that's, of course, an accurate statement. WikiLeaks doesn't go probing for information. What happens is people willingly leak the information that they, as whistleblowers, have uncovered, and WikiLeaks published it the way that, frankly, any news organization ought to, but WikiLeaks, one, has the courage that others lack. Two, they don't have the corrupt corporate media uh, industrial complex agenda that others have. Um, And three, they are able to verify their sources far more accurately than the mainstream media, which has a hell of a lot more money. You read about all the retractions uh, in the big, the big, establishment outlets from the New York Times to CNN, Washington Post, WikiLeaks has not had to retract a single story once. It's unheard of, but it's the absolute truth. And even the critics of WikiLeaks, with all of their weird theories and all their epithets, even they cannot challenge that crucial point. So this is uh, very important, but I personally have lost a lot of faith in Western governments obeying their own laws. The First Amendment in the United States is a beautiful thing, but look at all of the things that they're doing to try to eliminate it. They're trying to pass legislation. I think some of the votes have already been won, saying that um, you can be uh, held liable on criminal charges if you support support the BDS movement, which has boycotted uh, Israeli products, Israeli tourism, etc., uh, until there's justice for Palestine. And they were, look what they did to one of my favorite musicians, uh, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters, who just completed a tour of the US. They were trying to shut down his concerts because of the content of his speech, because of the 
things he said when he's not on stage and because some of the things that go on during his concerts, all of which are covered by the First Amendment. And not only are they incredibly peaceful, but I think that they're incredibly useful in terms of uh, using art for education. So uh, Julian Assange isn't out of the woods yet, but it is an important step. One of the main, now that Sweden has essentially dropped everything against him, the main obstacle between Assange and getting on a plane to Ecuador, which has given him asylum, he's obviously in the embassy of Ecuador in London now, is the problem of the, of this bail issue that he skipped bail in England and that the local police in London could arrest him. And then from there, he's only one extradition order away from being in the same jail that Manning was in, only they probably would go after him even more than Manning, certain, certainly if Pompeo and that lot had their way. In terms of the UK political situation, uh, the current government is uh, its a disaster for Assange, as the last, the last one was. But if Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader in the UK, gets in, and I don't know much about what he said about Assange because he's hardly said anything at all on the public record, but he certainly, Assange, stands a better chance under a Corbyn government giving him some sort of clemency uh, than the May government. And just to be clear, this clemency wouldn't be because uh, Corbyn thinks Julian Assange is a great guy. It could be, it's because, the it should be, I should say, because the UN said that his detention is arbitrary and that it's cruel and that the only just solution is for him to be immediately released and people are just ignoring that the UK is ignoring that, Sweden and the EU ignored that, the US is ignoring that but the Human Rights Commission said Assange must go, as in go out of the embassy but of course the only time America thinks someone should go is when it's a president of a sovereign country they don't agree with. Uh, We all remember the Assad must go, well let's change that to Assange must go and go go to freedom. Yeah, it, it, to me, the, the most disappointing thing about the Julian Assange story is the amount of um, people uh, on on a certain side of the uh, political uh, left right uh, divide the paradigm uh, because what was put out in WikiLeaks. Um, was perceived to have uh, grossly damaged the campaign of uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, a lot of liberals, uh, people who call themselves progressive liberals, um, think kind of consider him a kind of like a international criminal or some sort of uh, like he, sh- you know, he should he should be uh, like a spy or guilty of treason, which is impossible because he's not a U.S. citizen. So I don't know what, what what country he's guilty of treason against. But it's very disappointing because all of the information which was published was true. And so it, I believe it was leaked by uh, someone in the DNC. And I, I'm personally, I think it's somebody who got shot uh, and killed in the street in cold blood um, in Washington, D.C. last year. Um, that, that possibly a good chance to, in my mind anyway, that they leaked that information to somebody, to a middleman who then handed it to WikiLeaks, and it wasn't Russian hackers, uh, as the sort of narrative goes. But that's kind of disappointing because, you know, if, if he did the same thing for Trump, uh, uh, against Trump, uh, in the next election, someone comes with a whole pile of stuff exposing Trump's corruption with Israel or whatever. Um, those same people who are calling him an international criminal uh, will be cheering for him. 
uh, if it's if what he publishes is used to bring down the Trump administration, which is just a total people being hypocrites, Adam. Um, and so where are people's principles in politics is, is maybe my question here. Um, I thought the left was supposed to represent this sort of higher moral standard uh, than the right or the so-called uh, conservatives or neoconservatives. But it seems to me, Adam, that when it comes to the crunch, people are willing to sell out for a few bags of silver, depending on which way the uh, the, the, the wind's blowing and which political direction the wind's blowing. That's Absolutely. The Republicans and the Democrats are equally unprincipled, as are most of the mainstream so-called left, so-called right parties throughout the Western world, Europe, Canada, Australia, etc. People really ought to remember that when Assange and WikiLeaks burst onto the scene, it was during the Bush years. He was a darling of the so-called liberal left, who didn't like George Bush, not because he killed a million Iraqis, but because he said terror. Um, which shows you uh, which shows you what they value then when obama comes in and does the same stuff as bush only more of it assange becomes a villain and it was only when he went off to hillary clinton uh who's about as progressive as augusto pinochet at a firing range with margaret thatcher after a vampire lookalike contest they went uh, she uh, assange went from the villain to the supervillain. now if he continues as you say to expose trump's collusion with the foreign power because his administration and people on his transition team certainly were and it seems are colluding with the foreign power and that power is called israel never has been or likely ever will be russia i'd love to see the information that wikileaks may be able to produce the only problem there is that colluding with israel is good if you're a mainstream u.s politician or unthinking a mainstream media consumer so all this stuff we heard about foreign collusion when they thought about russia and people were talking about the logan act which now everyone and their brother's an expert on even though uh, <laughs> 10 months ago no one had even heard of the logan act um all of a sudden when when the when when things are on the other side and when there actually is foreign collusion exposed with israel as it already has been when it turned out that netanyahu personally contacted members of the trump transition team almost certainly uh jared kushner who is of course ivanka trump's uh husband nepotism ain't what it used to be uh or is it um and he essentially said not only uh, do we want you as the u.s to have a certain policy but we want you to convince other countries including russia to change their foreign policy so the real scandal of foreign collusion in the united states is israel manipulating u.s policy and trying to get the u.s to act as the middleman for israel in manipulating the foreign policy of other countries the only people involved in this in from the russian side were was the um, former ambassador kislyak who listened to the whole thing and said more or less thanks but no thanks so russia gate is israel gate uh much as i loved the wikileaks publications on corrupt crooked horrible killer hillary clinton i'd love to see uh, more such publications about trump but will it matter in a country where israel can do no wrong in the eyes of the elite who whether you're republican or democrat whether you're uh, whether you love guns and hate abortion or you love um, gay rights and, uh, and hate, um, you know, the 
uh, Alabama and Texas, they're all sitting there together drinking the same Israeli wine, Israeli food at the APAC dinners and these other lobbying groups. It really is a sham. They give people bread and circuses arguing about social issues, which frankly are state issues constitutionally anyway, and then on the foreign policy matters where the federal government should have some say, they're all essentially bowing before the same altar, and that's Israel. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, just uh, underline what you said, uh, that the whole Michael Flynn story, uh, where Flynn has been snared in this uh, Russian collusion narrative, um, what actually happened, uh, Jared Kushner was uh, uh, dispatched to basically give Flynn orders uh, to go and lobby to other members of the UN Security Council. This was during the transition period before the inauguration uh, to get them uh, basically uh, to influence their uh, vote on the uh, UN voting to sort of uh, put a put a halt to uh, illegal uh, settlements uh, by Israel in the West Bank, and so that that's beyond collusion. That is basically Jared Kushner, uh, the son-in-law, the president, acting as an agent of a foreign country by definition without a doubt and there's no no ifs ands or buts and you can zigzag all you want around that but it's the fact and so this is beyond collusion so nothing nothing happened with russia and here we have a a foreign country going in literally manipulating using a member of the uh, incoming administration's team, National Security Advisor, uh, former uh, retired General Michael Flynn, uh, in order to sort of um, patch up uh, votes uh, in in a UN uh, vote for on behalf of Israel that is completely in contravention of uh, so many other UN previous resolutions. I mean, this is and that's coming straight from Netanyahu's office to yeah. Kushner. So this is this is this is a compromised administration on so many levels um, but it's a compromised government washington is compromised in this in this and the media say nothing they've zipped it it's all russia 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 no russia gate like you said adam russia gate is israel gate and that is the big elephant in the room and it's just kind of obvious and if not for a few media outlets who brought this up uh, most people even who do know about it wouldn't know about it and to, to make matters even worse, there's a video on YouTube of a man called um, Haim Saban, who's a big entrepreneur. He did a lot of television shows like Power Rangers and all of that sort of oh, yeah. thing. And he's there at a, at, a, at a pro-Israel meeting in D.C., I believe it's D.C., with Kushner sitting next to him. And he's there joking about it. He said, I know some of you are giving, uh, I know some people are giving you a hard time, but I think what you did was great. I don't think it's illegal. <laughs> understatement of the century i saw as the other statement i'm not a lawyer and 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 they're just cheered they're cheering it on now imagine if someone uh and this guy by the way saban is the dual u.s israeli citizen um who is who was a hillary clinton supporter but who once said israel is the only thing that matters so there's your choice and your democracy for you but could you just imagine if it was someone who was part of the trump transition team sitting next to someone at a pro-russia dinner not that there are any in dc but let's just pretend and he said i know that you colluded a bit with russia but i think it's a-okay and you did a, a fantastic job cnn would probably be running that story for the next 30 years 
Oh, they would. And and by the way, what's ironic about this was that uh, they have stitched up Michael Flynn, uh, and he was he was the one who basically went and did the dirty work um, for Kushner, uh, which is his mistake, and I'm sure he's probably regretting that. He was he, the patsy, more or less. He was set up. Uh, Michael Flynn was totally set up. Now we know, of course, we know that, but most of the uh, the U.S. media doesn't know. By the way, that's a, a scary image uh, that you illustrated there with Augusta Pinochet and Margaret Thatcher. Um, that's pretty scary. That's like, I know it's not Halloween; it's Christmas. I should watch my references. That's like the that's like the nightmare pheasant shoot up in the, the uh, up at Balmoral or something like that. That's the worst possible pheasant shoot. But um, anyway. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm here with Adam Gary from the Duran, and we haven't even got into uh, hardcore Russia mania. And we're going to talk about the world's most interesting man after the break, and it will be very interesting, I assure you. I'm here, host Patrick Henningsen. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Tired of boring, stupid podcasts? I know I am. If you want something different, check out Jay's Analysis and Esoteric Hollywood only on the Alternate Current Radio Network. The biggest breakdowns of the biggest films, geopolitics, esoterica, and theology. Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. His personality is so magnetic, he is unable to carry credit cards. Even his enemies list him as their emergency contact number. He never says something tastes like chicken. Not even chicken. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dosakis. Stay thirsty, my friends. Welcome back to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thank you, everybody, for rejoining us uh, for this fantastic Sunday live broadcast, episode 214. Uh, Christmas is just around the corner, and I'm here with a special guest, Editor Duran. Uh, his name is Adam Gary. He's joining us on the live link from uh, nice Christmassy holiday london right now enjoying uh, the run-up to christmas hello adam hi patrick great to be with you still and uh you know of all the things that that you have to worry about uh over the holidays um it, we'll just add another one here uh this is from uh from the guardian uh this is from ewan mccaskill who is the uh defense uh, correspondent uh, uh who's got a russia story here i love this term adam defense correspondent um it's it's like it's def- first of all this this whole the term defense is so orwellian it's unbelievable nobody's going to invade britain right um n- not anytime soon as far as i know unless they're coming um, on the channel tunnel 
Um, but uh, so defense correspondent, what what a what an industry uh, that's been created now. We have the Russia experts, uh, defense experts, and I'm reading this story by The Guardian, which I'll read in a minute. It was a total howler. Um, but uh, you too could be a Russia expert, Adam. If you play your cards right, you could be the BBC's go-to guy on Russia. Well, a couple problems with that. First of all, I don't have a pathological hatred for Russia. And secondly, I know about Russia beyond mere anecdotes, lies, and fantastical sequences that are on the cutting room floor of the Dr. Strangelove editing suite. So for those two reasons alone, I'm immediately disqualified from being a BBC Russia expert. But if I learned how to launder money and spend time with uh, Russia, Russians running away from criminal prosecutions in the more expensive parts of London. Maybe, just maybe, I could get there. Yeah, you're not. You're not going to be uh, giving us the uh, the old Borisovsky uh, narrative. Uh, so, no jobs for you at Sky or the BBC for the foreseeable future. But um, at the Guardian here, Russia could cut off internet cables to NATO countries warns British military chief. This is Air Chief Marshal Peach. Love the name. Uh, says Russian ships have been spotted. Listen to this. Spotted close to the Atlantic uh, that carry cables uh, between the U.S. and Europe. And, of course, there's nothing that's more scary for people in the 21st century, Adam, that there maybe their Internet might get cut off. And lo and behold, who would do such a dastardly deed? But none other than the man himself, the man behind everything, Vladimir Putin, all-seeing, omnipotent, and uh, all-pervasive. Uh, he's everywhere. And apparently, uh, this is, could be a hunt for Red October here, says uh, Sir Stuart Peach is warning about this. I'm just going to say, Adam, this is the second time they've recycled the story, the exact same story they ran in 2015, October 2015. What would it take to cut U.S. data cables and halt Internet access Russian submarines, they said, and spy spy chiefs spy chiefs are worried about the possibility of. And this was again, it's a great Christmas story, Adam. Um, Russia could cut off internet access, and then we wouldn't be able to get those deals on Amazon, would we? Oh, boy, that's 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 too scary. I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> all, all all I can say is. In 1992, uh, the band Van Halen did a video for the song Right Now, and they had little cartoon captions um, as the music was playing. One of the things is, right now our government is doing things that we only think other governments do. And that's exactly what this story is. The U.S. Congress just killed what's called net neutrality in the U.S., meaning service providers, whether it's your Comcast, your Time Warners, whatever, um, can now um, determine which websites get censored, which don't, which websites are sped up, which websites are slowed down. It's censorship through the corporate back door. But instead of reporting about that very important story, instead, picture Putin in a, in a scuba diving uh, outfit with the aqualung and the mask and the whole thing, Swimming down to the bottom of the Atlantic, oh, look, there's the Titanic and, you know, images of DiCaprio. And then once you get a bit deeper, imagine him with a giant pair of scissors cutting the Internet. Because this story, which uh, would make uh, the the writers of Doctor Strange of blush, is what's being promoted. While the real story that could endanger the 
internet as we've come to know it, uh, a piece of legislation which just got voted up in the U.S. Congress, that's been totally suppressed. And, and got, by the way, guess who invented this original story in 2015? One of the, the original source that I can find of this uh, Red October um, internet cable story is guess who? The New York Times. Mm. I was going to say Al Gore because he invented the internet itself, but New York Times not. That's a close second. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, Al, Al, Al Gore is, uh, yeah, he's busy heating up the uh, Earth's uh, atmosphere uh, with all his his uh, his rhetoric, but um, and other things too. Um, so, <laughs> don't even want to go there. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, moving on swiftly. So, you know, so so, so New York Times. The New York Times, the Washington Post, um, and you know, I okay, we I'll get to, we'll get to we'll get to uh, the world's most interesting man in a minute. Um, but before that, I did I did a, a episode of Crosstalk on RT this past week, and uh, you know, you've been on this show uh, quite a few times, uh, Adam. You're a regular fixture uh, on this sort of, especially the kind of extended bullhorns. Uh, segment which usually goes um, on Sunday uh, or Monday, and uh, so you know it's a totally unscripted show, right? There's there's nothing on the cutting room floor, pretty much, right? It's what you see no. is what you what, what you what you see as it's filmed is is what goes out. That's that's a very very raw. Yeah, it's just, so, so. I I uh, I was doing this. She said, "Well, we're doing a thing on uh, the media and fake news." And if I can make if I can make it, I will never miss that topic because I have done so much uh, research on it, and I know this topic so well. And it directly affects uh, what we do at Twenty First Century Wire, and it affects uh, people that work on stories and do investigations with, like Vanessa Bealy, uh, and it affects other people that we all know. And work with, and you also at the Duran are affected uh, by this too, because uh, uh, independent outlets like us are labeled as fake news by uh, a mediocre uh, and uh, quite frankly ridiculous academics in America that are taking uh, partisan stances against people who uh, are uh, not uh, attacking Russia or attacking Trump, calling us uh, fake news or conspiracy outlets. So I take it personally. It's just kind of a uh, an issue um, being called a Kremlin agent or something like this publicly by people. Um, so it's, yeah, I get passionate about this uh, topic and I know what a fraud the whole thing is. Um, but there are some people surprisingly, Adam, that don't know what a fraud is. So, so Peter Lavelle um, is the host who's kind of like to me, a boxing referee. He reminds me and even more so now he reminds me of an old school boxing referee with the bow tie <laughs> he is totally like the old school boxing referees you know the big fights in atlantic city with like you know cassius clay and george foreman or or whoever and uh so peter's kind of a he's kind of a referee of sorts it's a tough it's a tough um balancing act to host a show like that but obviously if you do it long enough you become good at it but peter's kind of a different kind of referee because in this in some of the fights he actually gets in and starts punching as well. So imagine he's not afraid to get stuck in, and that's when it gets really interesting. Yeah, exactly. So imagine a boxing match where the referee starts hitting, uh, throwing rabbit punches and stuff. So I mean, this is so Peter's involved in the conversation basically. And so who did they team up for this show? 
on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. So I, I got the call. And, uh, and usually you don't know who's going to be on the show because until you get the introductions before the before the recording starts, and I can't see anything. I don't have a monitor. Uh, I just have an earpiece in one ear, and that's it, basically. Yeah. And, and the rest is in your mind, in your imagination. They said, okay, Patrick, say hi to Lionel. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Lionel. So um, I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. So, uh, oh, hi, hi, Lionel. How you doing? Lionel's in New York. Lionel Media. And uh, he himself is a lawyer. And so, and there I am with Lionel. And then the next guy comes on. We thought he, they, Peter thought he was going to bail because he was late. And it was uh, none other than, believe it or not, I was, I was surprised, Eric Alterman. And people say, oh, who's Eric Alterman? Well, Eric Alterman is a senior fellow at John Podesta's Center for American Progress think tank. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> not only that, but he is basically the court stenographer uh, for the Obama administration, and he's written a number of uh, books for the Democratic Party. Um, they're all partisan, call completely, um, a total liberal progressive uh, standard bearer, and a professor of journalism at uh, SUNY, uh, the State University of New York, uh, at the campus in Brooklyn. Um, and he wrote, apparently wrote the book on presidential lying. And so it's about Bush, basically. So obviously no Democratic presence in there. I did, I wasn't shy to point that out um, during this discussion. But he comes right out of the gates, Adam. I've never seen anything like it. So Lionel goes first. And then Peter goes to this, this guy, Eric. And uh, he comes right out of the gates and basically slags off, slags everybody off, saying, I don't believe a word of what was said on this show. And then it just went haywire from there uh adam i was like it was like a bar i felt like i was in a bar fight by the end of it as, as close as you could get from being in a remote studio t uh debating with three other people um it was kind of draining it was difficult it was a very difficult uh episode actually um but it ha it, apparently it generated some memorable moments uh, that have been serialized online, and uh, a big shout out to Creative Accidents, who's uh, uh, one of the ACR core crew members there. He's probably in the chat room right now, and he put a mem out, uh, which Lionel actually used on his Facebook page as the background image now, uh, which had emo emojis uh, laughing, and then it had one emoji who was crying, and that was this guy Eric. Um, but uh, uh, go ahead, and I'm gonna I'm gonna roll this clip, and this is Peter going over to. Uh, to Eric here. This is Lionel setting it up basically. And then it goes to Eric Altman. And basically I couldn't we I, I kind of burst out laughing when he made the statement, Adam. He said something like, uh, well the main the media never lie on purpose. They just make mistakes. And I just burst out laughing. I, I I didn't realize that Peter and Lionel were laughing at the same time. So when it came out on TV, it just was like it was like the Hollywood Squares. <laughs> you know, it's like Totally mess, just a total train wreck. I mean, anyway, I, I feel bad for this this guy. Actually, he wasn't enjoying himself clearly. <laughs> but um, here, roll this. Listen to this. Fact that today's mainstream media, today's Ted Baxter sock puppet echo chamber rancid odios ossified media is dead. It's through. It's in the death throes, and it faces an existential threat. That's their problem. And you think they'd be shaping up? Eric, let me go to you. They, that's a very good point to mention. I mean, they should they should get their uh, act together. But, you know, we had um, we 
still don't know why three different outlets confirmed the same uh, uh, bogus Russia story last week. They just said, had a retraction or an update. But they, don't, they didn't explain to the public how they came to that disastrous conclusion across the board. I mean, no wonder people don't trust the media anymore. They're not transparent. Go ahead, Eric. I find everything I've heard said on this program so far to be ridiculous. I think the mainstream media are, um, first of all, the word media is a plural noun. So to talk about the media, you have to make distinctions between which media you're discussing. Um, I think the media you mean, which is CNN, The New York Times, Washington Post, etc., I think they're in an impossible position because they are faced with a president who lies on average six times a day. Uh, that's a statistic compiled by the Washington Post. He probably lies much more than that. Okay, just just Adam, that's a that's a classic straw man <laughs> argument, right? So he just rather than answering the question, he built a straw man, uh, which has nothing to do with the actual question, uh, in order to sort of deflect and kind of divert the conversation over in another direction. Uh, so that's pretty amazing out of the gates. Here we go. But those are the lies they've caught using a very narrow definition of lies. So the mainstream He's media doesn't lie? The mainstream media doesn't lie? Is that what you're saying? Uh, first of all, we're talking... Well, I, I'm pretty capable of saying exactly what I want, so you don't have to put words in my mouth. Well, I'm trying to understand um, your words, Fox that's all. News lies. Fox News lies. Fox News lies. But, no, uh, the mainstream media, by and large, certainly the New York Times, Washington Post, and other reputable outlets never lie on purpose. They make mistakes. But it's very hard to cover a president who is uh, purposely undermining. <laughs> <laughs> that was the moment there. Um, we just all spontaneously burst out. And mind you, we can't see each other. There's, there's no monitors. I think the only person that has a monitor would be uh, Peter in Moscow, right? That's certainly how it is when I do it. I'm just staring into the oblivious cameras. Yeah, so here we go. Listen to the rest of this as he tries to recover from this. American democracy, who, again, lies on average six times a day and doesn't care that he's caught lying. Let me ask you a question. Uh, just take one, for instance. Donald Trump repeatedly tweeted that Barack Obama wiretapped him uh, on purpose. Now, the Justice Department found that that was not true. Has well, Donald Trump but there, there, seem, has but there he, seems has to be overwhelming evidence that he was let surveilled. He was Donald Donald surveilled. Trump, I'm not okay. done. I'm not All right, done. Let me I'm let him, not done. Okay. No, there's no evidence well, for that. Well, no, I, I said before uh, this about, program started that Trump? I don't want to have any filibustering because sentence. I believe in freedom I'm of speech. Okay, so Adam, what... Before the show started, Peter said, before the recording, he said, right, please, no filibustering. <laughs> and this guy just went on to filibuster on a straw man point. It's unbelievable. So I, I don't know what to say. Anyway, um, Peter made a good point there, Adam, uh, which you probably be aware of too, which is that Sus I think it was Susan Rice that was involved in the surveillance of the uh, Trump transition team. Uh, and so that was going on under Obama's watch. Um, there was, call it wiretapping, call it surveillance, doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Um, it's surveillance. So uh, Peter made a, a good point there, which is amazing. I, I would like to hear sentence. the freedom of speech from Patrick oh, in goodness. Plymouth. Go ahead, Patrick. React to what you've heard so far. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with uh, what Eric said about defining the terms. I'm going to say media as a singular uh, entity because when it comes to all things Russian, grammatically or all things incorrect. Trump, the media. The, well, it, it might. 
he see so adam he i was i was i was trying to basically dispense with the semantic point to make a conceptual point and he came to me like a junior high english teacher and said no no it's a, it's a, it's a it's a plural noun it's a plural noun you can't use is media is and he, I, he, I would have said more like the annoying kid in the front row who gets a uh, who gets a, a very severe encounter after the bell rings, but you're being far more charitable. <laughs> yeah, three o'clock high, three o'clock high. Meet you out in the playground, three o'clock. But um, so, so I was trying to make a conceptual point that the media kind of is in lockstep on certain issues, and he wouldn't let me finish uh, to let me make my creative uh, non-semantic point, but here we go. Be grammatically incorrect, but it does represent the reality of the situation, which is that media is completely together in lockstep, uh, reading off the same hymn sheet on all things Russian. And if you want to talk about the mainstream media, this these are all fake news stories from mainstream media. This is just my file for the for the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN. Granted, CNN's half of this, but this is my, perhaps my favorite. Uh, Pokemon Go was hijacked by Vladimir Putin uh, to mislead Americans. This is a CNN exclusive. This is just one example of many. And to, to say that the the you're, what you're doing, Eric, is is creating a false equivalency, uh, trying to uh, compare Donald Trump's Twitter tirades to the fourth, what's supposed to be the fourth estate, who has a collective budget, operating budget of over 10 million, 10 billion, sorry, billion dollars in the United States. All of these mainstream media outlets basically putting out fake news. The CNN WikiLeaks story is quite interesting because the same so-called sources uh, were used apparently by CBS News as well as CNN and others. And you read the email and you could see the date. It was September 14th. So I had the question is, you know, were these did these sources actually read the uh, so-called evidence or should it have been done in Braille or or the CNN's uh, journalists, so-called journalists? Are they illiterate? Uh, how does this type of mistake come to come to be? And how is it repeated uh, and passed on to other laundered? Laundered through CNN and then on yeah, to CBS, could, and I, they me, use let, Twitter. Let, 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 CNN uses tw- so. So the point I was making, Adam, is that CNN now uses Twitter. They 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 say Trump is putting fake news on Twitter. CNN tweets stuff out that that they end up having to retract. Um, but but by the time they do that, they've you know in, it spread the story like wildfire. And so in this case, it was Manu Raju was CNN's reporter that sort of put this howler out, and they all sort of went for it like they do on all these stories. Uh, Washington Post does the same thing as well. And so by that time, the thing is out, and it, it was just the most extraordinary piece of fake news because you're looking at the email, which is partially redacted, but the date there says – they, they said this was put out September 4th that Trump had access to WikiLeaks before it was made public. And here's the here's the evidence. And you look at the date, Adam, and it's September 14th. It was after this stuff was already out on the Internet. So it wasn't like top secret or anything. But they they thought they had the ultimate exclusive, Adam. It was it was just unbelievable. I mean, you have to look at that. And, and forget about the Pokemon story because that's just ridiculous. But that th- that means you shouldn't take CNN seriously as a as a news organization, the the most trusted name in news. Um, the 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 WikiLeaks story is a perfect example. This is this is not journalism. This is not media. This is what is this? This is like um, this is bad propaganda. It's 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 not even good propaganda anymore. It's like it's really bad dysfunctional propaganda, Adam. 
it's it's exactly that because good propaganda at least has some element of conceivability to it and good propaganda can only work if it seems airtight in terms of its presentation if it's if, if it seems that it's presented in such a way that it would be difficult to immediately refute the CNN bogus that they're putting out is not only easily refutable, but it's instantly refutable. Just look at the date stamp on that particular uh, WikiLeaks document uh, that you were talking about. It's it's also so hysterical that it's as though they're just waiting, salivating, trying to find the next story. And like with Bush, like with Obama, like with Trump, I'm extremely critical. I went from being cautiously optimistic about Trump to being comfortably pessimistic. There's a lot to criticize. You don't need to resort to lies. The truth is really, really good. With Kushner colluding with Israel, committing an act which could be uh, treasonous. Uh, I certainly think it ought to be classed as that. When we have Trump launching uh, airstrikes against Syria, which was not only illegal, but totally counterproductive, threatening North Korea, threatening Iran. There's plenty of material. But what does CNN do? They go off to the most inane, asinine, little point-scoring exercises based on total lies. And... I, I used to think this time, if you asked me this time last year, I thought if we can all just put up with three months of this, CNN won't ever be honest. They won't ever give you the real important stories because they never did. But at least this kind of immature sort of schoolyard point scoring would give way to, you know, the kind of gentler, more mild fake news that they were giving out prior to the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene. Now I think that's not going to happen. I think that CNN and organizations that follow this agenda are just going to get more and more absurd. Because once you've broken that threshold, where is there to go? Unless you totally rebrand yourself with totally new honest stuff, there's nowhere to go but further down. They're going to chase rock bottom till they try to find something that sticks. And right now, unless you're in that media bubble where you believe what these people say, and there's fewer and fewer people that do, there's just nowhere to go but further down yeah there i can't i can't imagine how much more of this that uh, and i asked this to mike robinson from the uk column uh last on monday's show and i said mike you know are have they always been this stupid or are we just is is russia making them stupid in other words (laughs) like, like trump has induced this sort of collective mass hysteria Putin has a mass stupefier machine. That must be it. And and so is is it is it that the Russian story has just triggered this kind of total hysterical? I called it a hysterical insurgency in the mainstream media. That uh, I don't believe that the mainstream media is a liberal media. I think it's liberal. It's conservative. It's it's pro military. It's pro Israel. Whatever you know, whatever flavor or shape it takes for whatever story, it, it's about protecting establishment interests whichever those interests are um but there seems to be this collective um lobotomization that's taken place like a voluntary lobotomization where i mean are or or are these all the most incompetent stupid people that they have hired 
and they pay them seven. So Manu Raju is on at least 600,000 a year. That would be like the low end for like a a CNN junior anchor. Be like 600K, maybe 700K. Brian Stelter, who's like, the name of his show is Reliable Sources. (laughs) What a laugh. And he was commenting on this, on defending it on Twitter. And I'm like, you're the host of Reliable Sources. Anyway, so if Adam, you know, you and I deal with information on a daily basis, okay? And some of it's quite complex. And sometimes it takes a lot of work to figure out what exactly you're looking at, right? Um, and to put it into context. So, But if someone's paying you $700,000 a year or a million dollars a year, Adam, are you going to get it right? <laughs> are you going to get it wrong? How many times can you get it wrong at on a million bucks a year? I mean, let's be honest. Especially when it comes to matters that are so simple. These aren't questions of analyzing the various factions in the multifactional conflict in Yemen. This is about, did a guy say what we said he said? And if so, did he say it roundabout when we said that he said it? And they're still getting it totally wrong. Yeah, so it's, it is amazing. Looking at Russiagate, I mean, the, the whole thing is... And I've, I said this. I said this on the air too, um, on the show, and I'll keep saying it. Eighteen months, twenty four seven, on every major U.S. outlet, every newspaper, every TV show, off the the rolling off the tongues of every politician, is this a total fake, fabricated news cycle narrative of Russia meddling, Russia influencing, Russia hacking, whatever? It's been a year and a half. And, and at what point does it, do people say, right, there's no evidence, so can we abandon this now? And it's doing so much damage uh, to bilateral relations between uh, the U.S., of course, by design. There's some people that are profiting off that, of course. But at what point do these people in the media um, abandon this sinking, this Titanic, Adam? This is like the Titanic hoax of all time, and they just keep laying it on and laying it on in the atom shifts of the world and at at what point are people going to say right okay that's it it's over but or is has has the u.s adam become like stalin's stalin soviet union in terms of media coverage where no one actually well people do believe it or the people working in media they can't possibly believe this but they're going on with the charade i don't know what it is adam it's extraordinary None of it. None of it's true. Seventeen agencies claim it's not. That's not true. That's that's a total debunked lie. And people are shaming people for how can you doubt the intelligence, the men and women who serve and put their lives on the line for this country, and how can you doubt their findings on the Russian meddling? And how dare the president question the uh, intelligence community, the IC? You know, the seventeen agencies. It wasn't seventeen agencies. It was only a couple agencies, and they handpicked the analysts to come up with that specific. Uh, uh, conclusion. So there's no consensus among the so-called U.S. intelligence community. It's a total, the whole thing is a fraud, Adam. Absolutely. And I I personally, I like your reference to Soviet media, but I want to 
go much more recent than the Stalin era. Let's go to the 1980s. In the 1980s, the average Soviet citizen didn't believe their media when they said things like food will become more plentiful, we're going to have a bigger harvesting. On the domestic side, they were skeptical. Naturally, that skepticism eventually translated into Soviet media reports about foreign countries. At the turn of the 1990s, a lot of Soviet citizens who didn't know a great deal and had no first-hand experience in places like West Germany, France, United States, Britain. They thought these were countries that were clean, full employment, where luxury goods were more or less the de facto standard of 80% of the population, and all the politicians were fairly honest and democratic. When the Soviet Union collapsed, they found out that while they still realized that their government was lying about the internal situation, that ironically, they were telling the truth about foreign countries by and large. The U.S. is engaging in imperial wars and lying about why they're going in. Unemployment is a massive problem in capitalist societies. Homelessness in cities, whether New York, Detroit, London, uh, Marseille, these are real problems. And so so what does give me hope is that people in the West will learn more about uh, people, countries on the other side, which is a term I dislike, the Cold War is over. There are now many sides. But I hope that people will eventually use the power of the Internet while they still can um, and find out more about what other people are saying and what they're experiencing. And I think in many ways this has already uh, worked in Syria, certainly. In Syria, you've got people that are... Syrian citizens in Syria blogging, making video reports, uh, taking raw footage of what's going on around them. And this has allowed people in the West to say the government isn't telling the truth about Syria. Assad is the person who's struggling to keep a country together where a Muslim shop is next to a Christian church and people are friends with one another, no matter if they're Shia, Sunni, Catholic, Orthodox, what Druze, uh, Arab, Kurd, whatever. And I think that if this model is extrapolated more widely, and in many ways with Russia it already is, the people in Russia aren't living in this kind of kooky James Bond meets Austin Powers dictatorship that people, uh, uh, that CNN and others like it would have you believe. People in Russia generally have the same complaints as everyone. The weather's too cold, uh, the price of such and such is too high, my boss is a jerk. But in terms of people sort of running from government uh, government agents that are just gunning people down who may have complained about their government, the ironic thing is that Russians actually complain about their own government far more than the average person in the West, especially nowadays. If you complain about the government, you're anti-American. We're back in the McCarthy era. If you, if you say something good about RT, let alone on RT in Europe, you're some sort of communist agent even if you're neither a communist nor an agent of anything. Where in Russia, people are very vocal, certainly at a cultural level. Russian people don't hold back their criticism, whether for their government or for another. So my hope, frankly, is that what happened in the late Soviet period will happen in the West, and people will will see that once you're exposed to what's going on in other countries, you'll realize your governments and your media, who are frankly the same thing at this point, are lying about it. They're just lying about the whole thing and the lies aren't even creative they aren't even interesting they're starting to get annoying and hope is on the way adam don't you don't you worry pope francis 
Pope Francis has announced. He says that journalists commit sins of communication. So the Pope has the pontiff has uh, weighed in on this uh, issue of freedom of the press uh, as he delivered his sermon uh, on uh, to journalists, a group of journalists in uh, on Saturday, and. Uh, Basically, an NPR reporter was there. Thanks, uh, thanks for that. Our U.S. taxpayer money at work there. So NPR <laughs> was on the scene, and uh, so who were there? So the Pope made comments uh, to, to members of the Italian Periodical Press Union uh, for Americans and other people. Periodical means magazine for those of you who are post uh, or sorry, post internet. Uh, so the Italian Federation of Catholic Weeklies uh, reported this meeting, and according to the Pope. Journalism is a field uh, dominated by the anxiety of speed uh, and is driven by sensationalism. Uh, an apt observation there by the pontiff, by his eminence. Uh, reliable information, he said, is at a premium. Don't you know it, Mr. Pope? Don't you know it? So Pope Francis also spoke about the perils of disinformation and slander. And uh, he, but not, not nowhere has he said. I can't find it. It's fake news. The Pope did not use the term fake news, as far as I could see, uh, unless they just haven't translated it in this. But um, it, it is pretty amazing. So even the Pope is getting involved here. So God, one step away from God Himself, is involved in the fake news debate, essentially. So I, I think this could be a good thing. Uh, a little bit of morals. Uh, injected into media, into the media industry, the mainstream media industry. That's not a bad thing, is it, Adam? No, it, would be, it certainly would be a good thing for the media to have not morals and, frankly, even rolling it one step back, just basic ethics. I think the speed in modern media, in terms of the speed of getting information out, is a good thing. And if people are worried that the information may not be accurate, all it takes is the simple word unverified or unconfirmed to show that you're being honest with your readers of views and saying, this is what we have so far, but it's not rock solid, it's just come out. CNN doesn't do that sort of thing when they should. And all it takes is those one, one, one or two simple words to communicate that. As for the sensationalism, absolutely, to me, it really all comes down to issues of war and peace. And when the United States is lying about what people should be afraid of, and when they're hiding things that really do matter, such as why is America uh, giving weapons to a Saudi regime causing a total crisis? In Yemen, why is Israel and the United States behind uh, supporting and propping up Takfiri jihadists in Syria when they should be supporting a secular government whose constitution stresses the tolerance between people and stresses a sense of civic unity above sectarianism? These are the whys and ifs and wheres that we should be hearing, but instead it's just more and more of the same nonsense from the usual suspects. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I could we, I could interject a few key points in there, but because it's the holidays, uh, we're going to move on to an interesting story. Now we're going to let's look at the profile of what I consider Adam is the new version, is the new archetype of the world's most interesting men. I'm talking about a geopolitical carpetbagger extraordinaire international. And his name, he's the former president of the Republic of Georgia. 
of Rose Revolution fame. His <laughs> name is Mikhail Saakashvili. Oh. Yes, former New York lawyer uh, turned uh, head of state in uh, in Georgia and the uh, nemesis, uh, in his mind anyway, of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so, so the, here's a guy, okay, here's a guy that was pretty much down on his luck so he was he was he was put on a magic carpet by John McCain and George Soros and he rode that carpet right into the presidency in Tbilisi in 2003 in the glorious rose revolution the first really uh the first proper color revolution i would say i don't know if you agree with me on that yeah but i would marketed packaged the whole thing um, and so there he goes into power, and then, in, you know, the, the, the dirt wasn't even on the rug in the presidential palace before it, they're already positioning some sort of confrontation uh, with Russia over the uh, breakaway republics of Georgia, South Ossetia, and Abkhazia. And so Saakashvili was there taking the weapons from NATO, taking the uh, Israeli military advisors, stocking up the ranks of his building this military in this little country of Georgia, which is really the soft underbelly of the Russian Federation. So in, in, in Brzezinski uh, uh, and Mackinder terms, this is the key node uh, in the sort of Eurasian Balkan equation is Georgia, without a doubt. Okay, And so there's this guy, and, and, and I look at his pedigree, Adam, amazingly. So he went to Columbia Law School. And then went to take classes at George Washington University. This is in the mid nineties. He's he's not very old. He's he's sort of our, he's my age or he's some sort of like you know mid to late forties now. But uh, as a young buck, uh, would he have been tapped by the CIA at one of their two most fertile recruitment grounds, which are Columbia University and uh, where Obama went, by the way, <clears throat> and uh, George Washington University. Uh, and so here's this lawyer. And he's down on his luck. He's been kicked out of his own country. They put corruption charges on him a few years ago. He had to renounce his citizenship of Georgia in order to avoid extradition. <laughs> and he's sitting in a bar, Adam, in Brooklyn. And he's being forced to turn tricks for CNN as a uh, guest pundit for, I don't know, 500 bucks a shot or whatever. It's it's so here he is, and then all of a sudden he gets a tap on his shoulder, Adam, and they said, Mikhail, we've got we've got a gig for you. And he's sitting there in this bar in Brooklyn with his there's a picture of it on our show page right now, and he's got his palm his face palming it, he's got a pint there. We've got a picture of Putin pouring him tea over the bar, actually. It's a really nice little photo illustration. But uh so and he gets the call to go to the Ukraine and become Governor of Odessa, and I can't for the life of me, I can't for the life of me guess why the U.S. installed putsch government in Kiev would would take this guy on this car this carpetbagger, and I I still couldn't for the longest time figure out why what he was doing there, and I kind of worked out that it was probably John McCain that installed him there. So they called uh, Poroshenko in Kiev, probably said, look, you got to put get this guy a job. Uh, we'd like him in Odessa. Okay, yes, sir, yes, sir, three bags full, sir. And that was that. Now, we're going to talk about that, but let me. I'm going to play you this clip, Adam, 
This is when he was. Uh, this is when he was basically excommunicated. He got kicked out of the Ukraine, and then he fought his way back into the country. <laughs> this this fall is the most amazing story ever in in geopolitics for one man, the most interesting man in the world. Here he is on CNN, basically setting up his return uh, to the Ukraine. Here it is. Literally gone to war with Vladimir Putin. Mr. President, great to see you again. Thank you for Thank you for bringing me back. Um, By the way, I have to say that Russia also said that they also want me dead. So we are, I'm on that list. You and Bill Browder, (laughs) unfortunately, are very similar in that regard. I was actually going to say that. Um, Mr. Browder today, he clearly made a connection between, he said there's a clear connection to Putin from this meeting between Donald Trump Jr. and Natalia Veselinskaya. That happened in Trump Tower during the election. Do you think that meeting was a Russian intelligence operation? Well, I think Russians are operating in all different directions. That's a surprise to me. Uh, overall, I, 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 I just take my word that nothing serious was done in that meeting. I don't think serious business would be done in such a short meeting uh, overall. But, uh, of course, Russia has been trying very hard. They've been meddling into elections. They've started to meddle into elections in my own country, Georgia, of course, they've been meddling all around the world. And I would be very surprised if they had not been trying to in the U.S. Well, the Congress. So, so, Adam, it's amazing. So CNN for, you know, was using him to sort of prop up the Russian uh, hacking elections narrative, basically. And, uh, and, and so there's this guy. He's totally stateless. He's been stripped. So basically, he got parachuted into kicked out of his own country after being president, had to give up his citizenship, gets parachuted into the Ukraine, uh, and given Ukrainian citizenship to be governor of Odessa, ends up getting in a corruption scandal there. They strip Poroshenko, the man who brought him in, takes his Ukrainian citizenship away, kicks him out of the country. He's turning tricks for CNN in Brooklyn. And then he, he comes, he forces his way over the border of Poland and, and, and Western uh, Ukraine with a mob of, of his supporters physically forcing his way into the country and then announces he wants to overthrow the government in Kiev. And then they take him to court. His supporters bust him out of the, of the police van. <laughs> the police recapture him a couple of uh, days later or two days later. They, they have him in custody. He goes onto the roof of a building, threatens he's going to jump. And he's going to jump if they don't release him for he's, you know, crying about his human rights, threatens to go on hunger strike. Then then the judge releases him on like pretty much no bail, basically. And I'm thinking the U.S. has to be involved in this. This guy, there is a purpose for this man in the Ukraine, Adam. What is this purpose? That's the question. Well, um, the most interesting thing of the many interesting things about this story is, well, there's two, there's two things. First of all, everything that's happened in Ukraine since 2014 is what happened in Georgia under Saakashvili. So you had a leader in, in Georgia, Edvard Shervanadze, who was much like uh, Poroshenko's regime's predecessor, uh, Viktor Yanukovych. Both Yanukovych and Shervanadze were men who said, we're going to go a bit more Western, but still be friends with uh, Russia as a country that we have a great deal of shared history with. And they tried to play this balancing act, and ultimately neither men were capable enough uh, for it to work. Um, and I should say that Yanukovych was far less capable at that. 
Then all of a sudden you had Yanukovych and Shervadnadze um, sort of turn in terms of their narrative from being hopelessly incompetent in terms of being able to balance West versus Russia into people who were Russian agents when the opposite was true. If anything, the Russians were a bit peeved at the lack of decision among these men. So you have a Rose Revolution in Georgia, you have a Maidan Revolution in Ukraine, you have an American stool pigeon government that's in there with Poroshenko in Kiev and, uh, and uh, Saakashvili in Tbilisi. They engage in a war of aggression against breakaway provinces that wish to retain their historic ethnic, cultural, linguistic and geographical ties with Russia. It doesn't work out the way they planned and then they start becoming incredibly unpopular as they end up ruining the economy they were supposed to save, imprisoning opposition who they were supposed to stand for in a democratic way, and having infrastructure collapse around them. Now, the only difference is that was about 10 years ago in Georgia, and it's right now in Ukraine. So it's sort of the case, if you could imagine the, the sort of the movie Twins, only with uh, without any Arnold Schwarzeneggers and two Danny DeVitas, that that's essentially what the whole poroshenko Saakashvili Game of Thrones is. But what the United States didn't bet on when they uh, sent Mr. Jobless uh, Saakashvili to Georgia, to Ukraine, uh, so let Obama not say that he's not a jobs-creating president, they didn't count on the fact that both of these men who have incredibly similar histories are incredibly corrupt, incredibly devious, incredibly suspicious and ambitious, wouldn't turn against each other. Boy, have they. And so right now, you have two people who attained the power initially in the same way, using the same narratives, governing in the exact same way, fighting the same losing and futile and, and frankly, immoral, aggressive wars that are now fighting each other to see who gets in power. I don't know if John McCain is capable of crying. I'm not sure if he has that human instinct. But if he could, seeing Poroshenko and Saakashvili of having this public power struggle might make him cry. It's like McCain's choice, Sophie's choice. Which one do I choose? Because they're both so similar in this sense. But this is where the wild card comes in. Uh, Saakashvili has been kissing John McCain's feet far longer than Poroshenko, and his background is much more intertwined with the United States than that of Poroshenko. So it helps in this sense to think of Poroshenko as the junior stooge, the uh, junior varsity of the all-American, literally, <laughs> uh, Saakashvili. So that's why, while Saakashvili isn't taken seriously in his own country anymore, isn't taken taken seriously by any objective commentators in the wider world, he's, he, he does stand a very serious chance of actually throwing Poroshenko out in a new Maidan-style revolution and taking power. We're not hearing about this uh, in the way that the original Maidan coup was talked about in Western media, because that was a foreign proxy coup that was set up by the West, and the cameras were there to spit out the narrative 
um, on command. Now it's a question of two people fighting over power, but whose policies would essentially be the same. If the Western media were to showcase this new actual revolution, this new coup in, uh, in Kiev, it wouldn't really suit the narrative because you have two ideological brothers fighting each other over greed, money, position, power, and in Saakashvili's case, a passport. As to who the, the U.S. government favors more, I would say that, um, that Saakashvili edges that out. He has more experience with them. He knows them better. And Poroshenko, even by the standards of those who put him in, has been a failure. The only trouble is Saakashvili's record of failure is even longer. The tragic thing about Ukraine is that a war of aggression against the Donbass republics in Donetsk and Lugansk has taken many interesting, uh, interesting, many innocent lives. And the economy of the country has ruined the lives of many innocent people. People who had no part in the political upheaval and who themselves have no ill will towards the fraternal people of Russia or even necessarily towards the Russian government. But it has to be said that the comical aspect of it is absolutely otherworldly. The Saakashvili posing for selfies while threatening to commit suicide in one of the weirdest publicity stunts in Ukraine. And there are some really weird publicity stunts there as there are people getting thrown into dumpsters, as there are mysterious disappearances, fist fights in the parliament, smoke bombs in parliament, food fights in parliament. And so the comical aspect of this has really been kicked into top gear by the presence of Saakashvili. And clownish though he is, in a battle of two Pagliacci-like characters, I wouldn't be surprised if Saakashvili comes out on top, with a little help, of course, from his old friends in the CIA. And the, 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 the prosecutor, the federal, federal prosecutor in Kiev was totally like dumbfounded by this uh, local judge's decision to basically let him go um, um, out of remand and like, not even with an ankle bracelet or anything, uh, totally a flight risk. And he said, he said, we have, he's, he's, I, he was going mental. He said, we have a, someone here who's totally stateless, who has pledged to overthrow the government, and you're letting him out without any conditions of bail. He said, this is unbelievable. Who forced. Well, forced his way into the country with a mob over the border. Can you imagine the scene of a film, you know, with it, forcing way through the border? Well, it's all there on YouTube, and it is as hilarious as it sounds. <laughs> all I can say is if you knew the salary or lack thereof of minor officials in Ukraine, you'd be surprised at how little a bribe Saakashvili's henchmen would have to pay this judge for him to make his ruling. The country is so fantastically corrupt. Uh, the levels of corruption, Somalia more corrupt, certainly, um, perhaps the Central African Republic, but after that, I struggle to think of a country where corruption isn't more implicit. I mean, if, if corruption were measurable in terms of a GDP, it would probably be the highest, the highest export in the Ukrainian economy. The corruption really is otherworldly. Uh, Albania, I'll throw that in there. Um, oh, absolutely. I, at this point, <laughs> Albania is terrible. I would say Ukraine now is even worse. It wasn't three years ago when you had the, the wishy-washy uh, Yanukovych, the mafia state in Albania uh, was, of course, worse. But now it's it's a real toss-up. But in many ways, not least because it's bigger, I would say Ukraine now has the edge. And I'm no fan of the Albanian uh, mafia state, and I'm on record on that. 
Yeah, well, f- funny enough, if if this doesn't go well for Saakashvili in 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 the Ukraine, there's not there's not much left. I mean, I I made the point. I would have thought with all his connections, he would have either been had a part, you know, a, a board a board director job at Goldman Sachs in charge of emerging markets in the uh, Balkans, or he would have gotten a partnership with a law firm. I mean, they set him up with a senior international f- statesman fellowship at Tufts University School of Law, and that wasn't even enough to sort of keep this guy gainfully employed. So I'm just thinking he's probably not a great lawyer. Or who knows? But there's not many places left after this. And Albania is a possible destination because guess who's running Albania now? Tony and Sherry Blair. Absolutely. So so I think TB and Associates might be looking for a man with these extraordinary certain set of skills, as Liam Nielsen would say. Uh, what do you think? Uh, would, would Blair, he, would he fit in with that crowd uh, in Toronto? Oh, he's, he, Blair and he have sung each other's praises. Um, Tony Blair's foreign secretary, uh, David Miliband, was one of his best friends at the time that he was committing an act of aggression against South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which even the EU, even the EU later admitted was indeed an act of aggression that Saakashvili's regime instigated. Um, the, one of the ironies of the many weird ironies about post-coup Ukraine is that the lingua franca of Saakashvili, the way he's able to communicate with people in Ukraine is the Russian language. No one in, in, uh, in Georgia speaks the dialect, some would call it a language called Ukrainian, and certainly not many in Ukraine speak the very foreign language of Georgian. So he's more or less, he's speaking Russian to the people with a few local dialectical uh, dialect phrases and bits of, uh, bits, of, bits of verbiage thrown in, but it's really the Soviet Union which made Russian the lingua franca in places like Georgia and beyond that has allowed Saakashvili this opportunity. He might not have such a uh, fun in Albania, but I'm sure that he could find, through John McCain or maybe the Clinton Foundation, a translator to run around there, because once he gets kicked out of Ukraine, Albania, and then from there, I don't know, does Tony Blair have any friends in Somalia? I think not, so that may be the end of the line, but it wouldn't surprise me at this point uh, that in a country where anything bad, in parentheses, can happen, like Ukraine, Isakashvili might actually get his wish and take power, even a year ago, I would have thought it was far-fetched, but it, it isn't anymore. He is building a movement of people, some of whom he's paying off, and some of whom are just so desperate for some sort of change that they'll go to literally anyone who's promising it. And Saakashvili fits the profile of literally anyone uh, better than anyone. He's the who's who of color revolution. So they're banking on a losing horse, but at least it's a horse with a bit of kick to it. Poroshenko is looking more and more like a man without any energy left. Yeah, the route, the Russian candy man has certainly lost a little bit of his luster uh, since uh, the, uh, the 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 hype in uh, 2014. So Sakasvili has Randy uh, Schwenemann who is John McCain's uh, foreign policy advisor, is his advisor and a lobbyist uh, named Daniel Kunin, uh, who's with USAID and the National Democratic Institute, two CIA front organizations, by the way, um, is is Saakashvili's full-time or was his full-time uh, top advisor, probably still is, I would imagine. So, so 
McCain's uh, handpicked his handlers. So I, I think probably he's a CIA asset, and uh, those are his handlers. This is being run by John McCain, most of this. Um, and so my question, firstly, why did the judge let him out? I'm sure, I'm sure she got a phone call from somebody who got a phone call from you-know-who. That's pretty I think that's pretty much a done deal in my in my head anyway. Um, the bigger question, though, I'm thinking is why. So, so he must have been in a spot of bother in Tbilisi to get kicked out of his own country. And so, I think that I think the deal is Adam, and you can tell me if I'm totally off base here or correct me to what you think the deal is. I think they said to Sakishvili, look. We've got we've got a gig for you, okay, and uh, we need you to go to Odessa, uh, and this is what you're going to be doing, and this is what we want you to do. And if you play your cards right, if you do this correctly, I I don't know if the, he could actually pull off being pre- carpet bagging into a presidency. That is just like historic. If he does that, he is the man, Adam. He is the man, okay. If you can be president of two different countries, and you know carpet bag your way into a place like the Ukraine and then become president. That is just amazing. Okay. So, but, so was this a deal that the U S said, Hey, you come in here because I think Adam, that Poroshenko hasn't prosecuted the war in the East in the Donbass to the United States's satisfaction. In other words, it hasn't been as violent or as brutal as they would have liked. And so I think they want to get rid of Poroshenko and Saakashvili is there to basically destabilize and confuse the political uh, scene in the Ukraine in order for them to put a new uh, a celebrity of sorts, and we'll, we'll speculate who that might be in a minute. But I think I think they've done a deal. They said, look, you do this for us, we'll get you back to Georgia in good steed. We'll get those charges dropped. We'll get your citizenship back, and and we'll make you president of Georgia again. That's what I th- that, that's what I think the deal might look like because once you're head of state, Adam. You don't really once you get a taste of that power and that status, it's nothing else is really going to do unless, of course, you're Tony Blair. But, <laughs> but he's practically head of state now in 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 Albania. Um, he's practically running the country. So, um, what do you think? Is do you think that this is a U.S. broker deal to put him in to do a job, and then they're going to get him out and sort him out in Georgia, or or do you really think there's a chance that he could? break make history and carpet bag his way into another country's presidency i actually think he could both scenarios are incredibly possible and in many ways i'm sure the people in the cia are thinking uh what can we do first and whichever one we can do first with the least amount of money and effort we'll take and if that doesn't work out then we'll go to the plan b the reason i think he actually could take over in ukraine is because many people who were members of this original putsch regime this post-coup regime were indeed foreigners they had a little Lithuanian guy who was uh, some sort of anti-corruption minister, and it turned out to be so corrupt that even he quit, and the (laughs) Lithuanian government isn't any friend of Russia at this time. 
how you had people from all over the world. You had Estonians, you had Canadians, you had U.S. citizens, all of these people who either had zero connection to Ukraine uh, historically or people that uh, had Ukrainian heritage and instantly sort of did the passport swap to try to seem a bit more legitimate. And so uh, even Putin himself made this remark that why do you have this Georgian, ex-Georgian president running around? Are there not qualified Ukrainians to take the job was the rhetorical question that Putin asked. And while there are some, not many people who value their lives and livelihoods would want to get into the bear pit of Ukrainian politics. Uh, as the old uh, Sinatra song goes, that's life. It's what all the people say, riding high in April, shot down in May. And indeed, uh, a lot of these people are shot down both literally and figuratively. One month, you're the anti-corruption uh, minister. The next month, you're in jail on corruption charges. <laughs> One month, you're looting the treasury. And the next uh, you're in prison <laughs> it's really if I, the thing with ukrainian politics that that everyone ought to know is that it was always corrupt uh, i'm no fan and never have been of yanukovych but the fact that things have gotten so much worse you've gone from a systemic corruption to almost an, uh, an otherworldly corruption it's just and the media there the official media is so insane because there really is no more apt word to describe it there's this guy his name suits me at the moment but he goes on various tv channels in ukraine he's a self-styled historian and he said that jesus christ was ukrainian um socrates <laughs> and aristotle were ukrainian i don't remember who else he said mind you, you the whole idea of ukraine as a separate nation and ideology is an early 20th century in invention that was pushed by lenin because of his very peculiar and I would say wrong nationalities policy in the U.S. So that's for another day. But you actually have people who believe this. And I've spoken to people from Ukraine and they actually believe that it's somehow the center of the world, a kind of Athenian renaissance when everyone else looking in, including people who formerly supported the coup, they're looking at the place and thinking this place is a nuthouse. And so anyone who does have a level head, and of course there's ordinary citizens that have very level heads, they want to do one of two things. If they know people in Russia and if they know that they can get a job in Russia, they'll go to Russia. If they speak German or English or another uh, European language, they'll try to get a visa to any European country they can and find work there. The best job for a Ukrainian who has a level head is to be uh, employed in a foreign country. And those aren't just my words. Any honest Ukrainian, whether in the streets of Moscow or the streets of Berlin, will tell you just that. So that does leave the door of politics in Ukraine open to various thieves, mafiosos, thugs, neo-Nazis, George ex-Georgian presidents. It's really that absurd that anything is possible. So if you're out, if you're out there listening in Radio Land at the local lunatic asylum, if you sniffed a bit too much glue, if the drugs you bought didn't do what they wanted them to do, you too one day could grow up to be president of Ukraine. Well, it's just that easy, isn't it? Just It's all about timing at the end of the day. I do think it's ironic that the same mob uh, and intimidation tactics that got the Yatsenyuk uh, Poroshenko uh, uh, government into power in 2014 um, that Saakashvili has used the same exact mob intimidation tactics to 
build his insurgency, and they're crying foul in Kiev. And I just say Poroshenko essentially only has himself to blame because he allowed that viper uh, into his nest. So he's been, I think, double-crossed uh, by the United States in this story, and we'll see how it ends up. Um, but, you know, who, so who's next? This is the question. And um, who's who will be replaced if it's not Saakashvili? If they can't get that carpet bag all the way into the, the presidential palace, uh, the, what, what qualifications do you need to be uh, leader of the Ukraine? I would say singing, singing you have to be a good singer, uh, and maybe it's time for a female again. Uh, I'm thinking shades of uh, uh, Yulia uh, Timoshenko. Uh, so not, not her specifically, although that's possible Hillary uh, late dark horse run there. But uh, there's this Klitsch, Klitschko is, you know, Vitaly Klitschko, the boxer who Victoria Newland was was trying to get um, uh, nested under the wing of uh, of Yatsenyuk to sort of mentor him. Um, I think his credibility, Adam, is it safe to say it was totally shot when that phone call conversation was leaked between uh, Newland and uh uh, Jeffrey Payette, U.S. ambassador to Kiev. That, at that point, Klitschko's credibility just went out the window. Total stooge, right? Well, Klitschko is a man. He's he's been an incredibly unsuccessful mayor of Kiev, and the joke about him is that he is he's uh, uninte- unintelligible in four different languages. He claims <laughs> to speak Russian, Ukrainian, English, and I think one other. Uh, but he's totally. He's totally indecipherable. There's clips all over the internet of him giving interviews in what is purportedly his native language, where he's talking about having conversations with dead policemen, uh, talking about we need to unite so that our union can be more united with its unity, and all sorts of things. So, I mean... He definitely, when it comes to eloquent boxers, uh, if uh, Muhammad Ali, my favorite, is on the super eloquent end of the spectrum, Klitschko is, uh, I'll, I'll put it this way, he makes he makes uh, George Foreman sound like a Shakespearean actor. This guy is not your Muhammad Ali, who frankly would have been a very capable politician if he didn't fall ill um, uh, fairly early on in his life. Was, it, was his brother have the PhD or was it Vitaly? His brother is a boxer uh, as well, but one of them has a PhD apparently, but I don't know from what university or whatever. Or but, in what subject. <laughs> yeah, so it might, it might not be Klitsch as uh, Victoria Newland called him. So we've got Klitsch. He's kind of like out of the picture there. So then there's this other guy. Here's here's my dark horse, uh, Adam. Um, uh, Sviat uh, I'll pronounce this to, uh, here. Uh, Sviatoslav uh, Vakarichuk. Sviatoslav Vakarichuk, the lead singer of the Ukrainian pop band uh, Okean Elzi, and he is being groomed by none other than Michael McFowl right now and being t- taken on a tour of introduced to the United States doing the University of Stanford, everybody, next leadership generation seminars. 42 years old, got a, has a Ph.D. in uh, 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 physics, I believe, uh, astrophysics. So clearly intelligent, good singer, young, and definitely could fit the bill of a reformer uh, if marketed correctly. And think of the Trump. You know, it's nothing wrong with a celebrity being head of state now. This It's totally feasible now. Trump has opened the gates really to that. So it's acceptable now. 
So I don't know. He, I, he's my leading sort of candidate right now. I think he's very much looking at his future prospects, but I think that we might be one one coup away because he's not as stupid as some of these other characters we've mentioned. I think he may well be waiting for the Saakashvili Timoshenko or Timoshenko Saakashvili <laughs> dream team or should we say scheme team to fail before marching straight in. In the same way that Trump himself uh, waited quite a while. I mean, Trump was going to run for president in 88. He was going to run so many times that no one actually thought he would do it. He eventually did. And I think we might be looking at something like that there. A, a, a young man of great expectations, if we can put it that way, isn't, I don't think, going to want to jump in to the snake pit, or should we say snake pit inside a cesspit that is Ukrainian politics now. I think it will take one more seismic failure of a well-known person from the previous generation of politics, even though Saakashvili himself is quite young, but he got a head start, so politically he's of the older generation. I think it may well take one more seismic failure. That being said, anything is possible in, at this point, including the secession of Transcarpathia in southwestern Ukraine, where there's a Hungarian minority that are getting equally fed up with the neo-Nazi regime in Kiev, as are the Russians in the East. So you could see a state that's going to be fracturing at both ends. Wow. And so the Crimeans are looking more and more like the geniuses that we thought they were uh, by not hesitating uh, to do what they did uh, in March of 2014, the fastest snap referendum in history. <laughs> so they, they knew it was coming. I mean, they, they experienced um, terrible atrocities at the hands of the Nazis, and they saw how these renegades from northwestern Ukraine, an area that was historically ruled first by Austria and later by Poland, they saw that these people are bloodthirsty maniacs, so they knew exactly the kind of people that were leading the so-called Maidan in 2014. They jumped ship with the referendum. The people of Donbass did it in their own way. Uh, they haven't uh, become part of the Russian Federation, but it's a frozen conflict. There's no way at this point that Donetsk or Lugansk will ever go back. Now you have the Transcarpathian Hungarians agitating for their uh, for, for some sort of sovereign agreement in the southwest, and the Hungarian government itself is being quite responsive to them insofar as they're raising the issue publicly. You could even have a situation um, well, before we get to that, you have places like Odessa, Mariupol, um, Kharkov, where you have people that are that are Russians, Russian people, or people who are comfortable with the Ukrainian name because they grew up with it, but see no schism between that and a Russian identity. They don't. They see a broad identity as something that's entirely inclusive. There's no mutual exclusivity. So, what I think in the in the long term future is that you're going to see a fractured state with more places in the East either forming their own sovereign confederation or joining the Russian Federation. You'll see 
agitations by the Hungarians in the southwest. You'll see some of the Romanians in the, in the, in the even further southern regions of the southwest. And you could even see a schism between the leading oligarchs of Kiev and the neo-Nazis of the north of the um, northwestern regions, which were historically either Austrian or Polish, leading a kind of internal revolution amongst people who consider themselves Ukrainian, but are arguing over just how extreme we're going to be. So if someone wants to rule that, I can't think of a better person than Mikhail Saakashvili, because all he'll do is hasten the decline of a state that was built on a false historical premise, uh, run by the most corrupt tyrants, oligarchs in the world, and where incompetence and corruption are as uh, are blowing in the breeze, essentially. So bring on Saakashvili, if that means a, a further push towards the inevitable, which is the country fracturing into what I think will be much more manageable and fair units. And, spe- you know, for the, la- the, the last thing I'll say about Saakashvili, in terms of his U.S. relationship, the rug could get pulled um, out from under him if this story uh, that I'll just briefly lay out here, uh, and we've only got a, a, a couple minutes left in the segment, but uh, this, this was a, a set of interviews that have broadcast on Italian TV mainstream channel uh, Canale 5 uh, in a program that's like Panorama. It's called The Matrix on Italian TV. Interviews with three Georgian, Georgian nationality snipers conducted by Italian journalists, uh, basically talking about their role in the Maidan in shooting uh, snipers, killing uh, police officers and civilians. Uh, and there was, so we're talking here, 50 snipers, five, uh, 10 teams of five uh, dispatched, including spotters on the ground from different directions. And so this documentary features uh, these three snipers, interviews with them, Georgian military officers formerly, and recruited to carry out a special mission in Kiev uh, in the uh, uh, winter of 2014 during the Maidan so-called uprising. Uh, And so they claim uh, that they landed and were equipped and under the supervision of, uh, well, looks like the United States Army um, special operations. And so paid not much money, but you can, as Adam pointed out earlier, 5,000 U.S. dollars, uh, for a, a day or two's work isn't bad uh, if you're from that part of the world and the average salary is 190 euros a month. Uh, five grand is not bad. Um, and so this has come out on Italian TV. No one's come out to really shoot this down, which is the odd thing. I would have think that they would have gang-tackled this report as being fake news, but they haven't yet. Everyone's ignoring it. And when they ignore it, Adam, it makes me think that there might be some truth here. Here's the problem. Uh, these three gentlemen are linked to none other than Mikhail Saakashvili. So there is a possibility, Adam, here that that Saakashvili is also there to get a hold and destroy certain records or a certain piece of information that might implicate the real uh, people behind the Maidan shootings that were used as the pretext for the overthrow of the government. Okay, I think he could be in there also as a cleaner. As well, and that might be another motivation of him getting or seizing power is to get control and maybe possibly do some mopping up on behalf of his paymasters. 
uh, in the United States. But this is potentially an explosive story. We've got a minute left before we go to break. Your final thoughts on this one, Adam? Well, absolutely. They need a new narrative. And Saakashvili, essentially, they want him to go in, sweep all of this information that was never supposed to come out under the rug. Uh, the Berkut, the police loyal to the legitimate president, uh, Yanukovych, said from day one, the snipers were shooting at everyone, civilians, policemen, officials, everyone, uh, where the Western narrative was they were shooting at protesters and therefore de facto the Yanukovych employees. We, we always knew that was false. This new information sheds new light on who these people actually were. Because this is being found out, because the Maidan experiment has failed by any objective standard, they need a new narrative, and Saakashvili appears to be the man who will deliver it so they can say, look, all of that stuff that happened with this Maidan, with this putsch, it was all just practice. It was the dress rehearsal. Here's the real thing, even though, if anything, it will be even more shambolic than the first time round. And he's working with, by the way, Optor or Canvas. This is the same sort of revolution company consultancy that uh, helped to uh, de- de- dethrone the Milosevic uh, government in Belgrade and also worked with the Arab Spring uh, with Tunisian activists uh, on behalf of the U.S. State Department and probably the CIA, of course, uh, Optor, Canvas. They have a branch in Georgia as well. I think they're called Enough. Uh, was the name of the uh, organization. They're now in the Ukraine. Um, So he's clearly working with that uh, consultancy, which is a U.S. consultancy, who, by the way, were involved in the early days of Occupy Wall Street uh, in in New York City. I have a video of, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the uh, Maranovich, I can't remember the name of the one of the directors of that company, the partners, um, but he was there leading general assemblies in New York at the early days of uh, Occupy Wall Street. This is called the revolution business, ladies and gentlemen. It's professional. It's organized. It's profitable. This is what goes on behind the scenes, and this is not what you'll ever hear uh, admitted to uh, by any of our uh, media heroes, uh, not least of all uh, the ones you see uh, in the New York Times uh, in the Washington Post. However, um, there is one journalist who uh, called out and laid this agenda out and, and um, um, miraculously uh, was published by The Guardian in 2011 at the height of Occupy Wall Street, and his name was me, Patrick Henningsen. I actually laid this out in 2011 in The Guardian uh, at the height of the Occupy Wall Street uh, uh, protests and said exactly what the agenda was and named Optor and Canvas in that story. I'm amazed, Adam, that they actually published it, actually. But it's it still stands up to the test of time uh, today. So uh, just want to thank you, Adam, and, you know, thanks for sticking around a little bit over time. We're going to take a break and come back with our, our, our Christmas Christmas message after the commercial break. But thank you, Adam Gary, for your work and uh, for being versatile enough to handle this gymnastics routine, which we managed to put, pull off here uh, without any uh, doping. Uh, (laughs) I'll see you at the Olympics it's it's always a great pleasure I hope we see Russia at the Olympics Uh, the next one seems like they're permanently banned that's another story and by the way there's a story about Russian doping controversy on Sunday screening today it's up on the website right now it's pretty pretty amazing but um, take care Adam the Duran.com is your website uh, and check out Adam's work daily uh, on the Duran, follow him on Facebook and on Twitter, and uh, I hope you have a great 
Christmas, Adam. You too, Patrick. Same to you and all yours. It's a great pleasure being here. Thanks, Adam. There he goes, Adam Gary, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to take a short break and be right back. This will be a very short uh, uh, commercial break, and I'll be back with my Christmas uh, conclusions and leading up to the holidays for everybody out there. And a big shout out. I'll sh- give a shout out to some of our our friends and supporters as well after the break. But but I have something serious I want to say after the break as well. So stick around for that. This is the Sunday Wire. I'm your host Patrick Henningsen. We'll be right back. <laughs> 